Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Well, good morning, church. I want to invite you to meet me this morning in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, as we begin a three-week series on the first chapter of Proverbs that we're calling Wisdom from Above. Wisdom from Above. This is a series that we're hoping to leave open, uh, and we're hoping to make periodic returns to this book in the months to come. Now, I want to tag this particular section just the first seven verses of Proverbs 1, with the two main invitations from the poem, and that is hear and fear, hear and fear. So Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge, and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let us pray. We pray, O Lord, that you would teach us to number our months and our weeks, our days, and even our hours, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever paused to consider that there has never been a world so filled with information as the world we live in today? We have access to nearly the totality of human knowledge at the tip of our fingers. All we have to do is open the little computers in our pockets. We have access to full university courses from some of the most prestigious universities in all of the world for free on YouTube. Full courses. We have the sum total of pretty much all of the books that have ever been written. We can access them for free online. In Chicago alone, we have 80 public libraries. That's more than one library per neighborhood in the city of Chicago. We are so filled with information. Now there are artificial intelligence softwares that promise to replace Google. Why? Because instead of forcing you to scroll for an extra 12 seconds to find, you know, the, the answer that you're looking for, the artificial intelligence actually knows what you're looking for, and it saves you that fraction of a time. We are filled with information. Yet in spite of being filled and even stuffed to the brim with so much information, there's never been a world that's been so starved for wisdom. A world that is absolutely famished for the wisdom that people have had in days gone by. You don't have to look very far to see that the world is starving for wisdom. Uh, Humanity has known for a long time that personal debt is a really unwise thing to accumulate. And yet if we look around, there's never been more debt than there is today. 
It's not for lack of information. Uh, we, we know very well that the carcinogens and cigarettes are not good for us, but the information alone does not give us the wisdom to deal with that type of problem. And although we have the ability to communicate with people within seconds across the globe, we don't have the wisdom to talk to the person in the cubicle next to us, to talk to our neighbors, to talk to people who, who we don't know as well. Yesterday morning, I walked by two dog parks, and there are about 30 different dogs and 30 owners in each dog park. And it wasn't hard to notice the fact that at both parks, there wasn't two people talking to each other. They're all sitting there on their phones, and we don't, we don't have the wisdom, even though we're so filled with information, to actually live in the world full of information, starved for wisdom. So I think we're compelled to ask this question, whatever happened to wisdom? Has it always been this way? Has the world always been famished for wisdom the way we are today? Where did it go? How did people of old actually access this wisdom? And what did they know that we seem to have missed? Well, one of the gifts of God's word is that it transports us both to a place and to a time where wisdom was known. The scriptures contain everything that we need for life and godliness and wisdom. And the Bible contains everything that we need to know to regain this wisdom. And the poem that we read just moments ago provides us with a solution to this modern starvation of wisdom. And it answers this question about whatever happened to wisdom. And I think the answer it gives is both simple on one end. It's very simple, and yet it's comprehensive. It's simple and comprehensive. But the only way for us to understand this is if we submit our minds now and our hearts to God. Because here's, here's the simple answer. Here's what I think it says. That the fear of the Lord is both the beginning and end of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, it's, it's the beginning and it's the end of wisdom. If we want to set out on this journey to, to grow in wisdom, then we must start here with the fear of the Lord. And if we want to know what wisdom is going to gain for us over time, then we need to know that its end is in fearing God. It's everything in between. It's the beginning. It's the middle. It's the end. True wisdom is found nowhere else than in fearing Yahweh, the God of the Bible. So let me ask you personally, as we begin this study this morning, do you know anything of the fear of the Lord? Is that something that you've experienced in your life? We'll get to what it means to fear the Lord, but I wonder if you've ever felt in your heart that you truly have feared the Lord. If this is where wisdom begins and ends, let's see if this is how it pans out. We're going to look at just three sections this morning. We're going to first see the author of Proverbs. Second, we're going to see the aim of Proverbs. And third, we're going to see the argument of Proverbs. The author, the aim, and the argument of Proverbs. So look again at verse 1, where we see the first section, which is the author of Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So we're introduced right away to the author of these Proverbs. His name is Solomon. And we're also very quickly introduced to the nature of this book, the genre, the type of literature that we're in, which is Proverbs. A proverb, here's how I define it, a proverb is a short, memorable statement that emphasizes moral instruction. It's a short, memorable statement 
that emphasizes moral instruction. And each component of that, of that definition is important. It has to be short. Why? Because the brevity of a proverb actually serves the memorability of the Proverbs. It's meant to be memorable, and therefore it needs to be short. And the reason it needs to be memorable is because it has to do with moral and ethical instruction. And oftentimes, there is a decision in our life that demands that we make a moral and an ethical decision in the drop of a dime. And if the proverbial wisdom is not short, and if it's not memorable, and we can't call it to mind when we need it most, then it hasn't served its purpose. It's a short, memorable statement that's meant to compel us to morality and to ethics in God's world. This is what Proverbs are. Well, the book of Proverbs, of course, is not the only book to contain these types of sayings. Uh, From the beginning of the world, people have loved this kind of literature. Uh, it's outside of the Bible as well. It's popular in antiquity and it's popular today. Uh, There's a popular proverb in ancient Rome that was meant to be both pejorative and somewhat humorous. And it goes like this. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. As if to say, not everyone bearing gifts has the, have the purest of intentions. There's an ancient Egyptian proverb that says, the house of the thief is the first to burn. The house of the thief is the first to burn. People have always loved Proverbs, even people who don't follow Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Well, more recently, we've been introduced from Prover- uh, to Proverbs from the likes of Benjamin Franklin and, and Shakespeare. Here's what uh, Benjamin Franklin said. He said, a man who's good at making excuses is seldom good for anything else. Or here's what Shakespeare said, better three hours too soon than a minute too late. And whether you recognize it or not, this is actually the world that we deal with. This is the world we deal in. We're always using proverbial statements, whether we recognize it or not. Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. This is a very old Chinese proverb, but I guarantee you someone in here probably heard that proverb this week. If you fail to prepare, then you prepare to fail. This was penned just uh, under 100 years ago. Proverbs, they're in the Bible. They're outside of the Bible. They're, they're what we deal with in the world that we live in. They're meant to teach us how to live a moral and ethical life. They're useful. They're fitting for the goal of teaching us how to be ethical. Well, that's what they are. Uh, well, who are these particular Proverbs by? We just read it. They're from Solomon. Now, Solomon was the wisest king of Israel. We're actually given the secret about how he became so wise in the Bible itself. God comes to Solomon one night. He says, Solomon, in a dream to Solomon, he says, Solomon, ask me whatever you want. Blank check, so to speak. What do you want, Solomon? And Solomon says, Lord, I want wisdom. I want wisdom. We read in 1 Kings 3, God says, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. And then in 1 Kings 4, it's testified to this. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. God asks, what do you want? Solomon says, I want wisdom. God says, all right, here you go. I'm going to make you the wisest man to ever live. 
Notice at the end of that verse, wiser than all the wisdom of Egypt. The Egyptians were known for their wisdom. To be wiser than the Egyptians is to be like, you're in the top echelon of wisdom. And this is who writes these Proverbs. Beloved brothers and sisters, if we open our Bibles to the books, to the book of Proverbs, what we have laid open before us are words penned by the wisest man to ever live. Let's not, let's not skim over that too quickly. These are the wisest words from the wisest of men to ever be penned. What a gift we have from God. This isn't second-class wisdom. This is world-class wisdom. So here's the question. Are we going to be attentive to this wisdom? Are we going to listen? Now, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a good one-liner. I, I, I could have books on my shelf at home that are just full of one-liners. They're great. But... Solomon doesn't want wisdom so that he can write a bestseller for the New York Times on one-liners. He wants wisdom. Why? So that he can rule the people of Israel. He wants to rule with justice and with equity. He wants to rule so that the whole, the whole congregation of the people of Israel would flourish. This is why he wants wisdom. And this wisdom that he asks for, it pleases God. Ruling wisely pleases our God. He, he fears God, and so he wants to please him. Now, it's worth noting in passing that the book of Proverbs is not exclusively tied to Solomon. If you turn in your Bible, you don't need to now, but if you turn to the end of the book, you'd see in, in chapter 30 that there are a few Proverbs from a guy named Agur. And in 31, there are the words of a mother of a guy named King Lemuel, in, in chapter 31, that is. But substantially, the book of Proverbs is from this guy named Solomon. Solomon feared God. And beyond the shadow of a doubt, his wisdom was from above. It was a God-given wisdom. Here, Solomon, I am giving you wisdom. But this doesn't dismiss the means God uses to actually give Solomon the wisdom that he ends up having. Mean, the means that Solomon has access to or actually alluded to briefly. Do you notice what it says? Solomon, son of David. Now, David is known to be the, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He writes a lot of songs for them to sing. But David was a sage in his own right. The psalm we sung earlier, Psalm 34, Psalm 19, Psalm 37, these are historically classified as wisdom songs. So Solomon's dad was a wise man in and of himself. I believe that the way Solomon became so wise is, yes, because God gave him wisdom. But the means that God gave him wisdom was through a very, very wise father. But not just through his father, also through his very wise mother. If you scan your eyes down the page within Proverbs 1, you'll see that he commends to young, young people, listen to your father and listen to your mother. She knows what she's talking about. Listen to the wisdom of your mother. This is the biblical vision for instilling wisdom in the next generation, is to have a, a mother and a father both instilling wisdom in their children. It's not just the father at the expense of the mother who's on the sideline or vice versa. Just the mother instilling wisdom while the father sits on the sideline. No, a wise father and a wise mother instilling wisdom in children. This is how we are going to train the next generation in the wisdom of God. 
Well, that's the author of Proverbs, Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. These are his credentials. This is what sanctions our attention. But what about the purpose of, it, of the Proverbs? Why do they exist? Well, that takes us to the second section, which is the aim of Proverbs in verses 2 to 4. Look again at verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insights. We'll pause right there. We're given many gifts in this book, but among the most precious is what we have here in verse 2. We're not left guessing what the, what the purpose of Proverbs are for. Here, he tells us explicitly, plain and simple, this book exists so that you would know wisdom. So that you would know wisdom. So what's wisdom? There are several ways we could put wisdom, but here's how I would define it. Wisdom is skill for daily living. It's skill for daily living. It's, it's not just skill that a trade. You know, that guy, he's a great accountant. That's, that's not wisdom. That's skill for a particular trade. That lady, she's wise. She, she knows how to navigate this world. She's wise. She has skill for living. If I asked you about anyone you knew who had a great professional skill, I'm sure everyone here could fill a small phone book with, with names that come to mind. We know a lot of people who are skilled at particular, at particular trades. But if I were to ask you this morning, give me a list of people who you think are skilled at living. Skilled at just the art of living in God's world. My guess is that that list would shrink from a small phone book to a, to a short list that you might be able to put on one page. Wisdom is hard to access. And if you do have names that come to mind, let me just commend you right now that you keep those names top of mind. These are the people that we ought to be listening to. The proverbial writer, he's just saying, whatever you get, get wisdom. Wisdom is better than gold, and understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. And wisdom, it's the theme of these first seven verses. Did you notice that some iteration of the word wisdom is there five times in these first seven verses? It's the theme of this section. Why? Because actually wisdom is the theme of this book. All of Proverbs is ultimately about the wisdom from above. And this book is emphasizing wisdom because wisdom is actually one of the great themes of the planet and of the universe. It's kind of a strange thing. What do, you, what do you mean it's a theme of the universe? Well, look at what it says in Proverbs 8. When he, that is God, established the heavens, I, this is wisdom speaking, I, wisdom, was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits, uh, its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. This is why wisdom is what is the theme of these first few verses, because wisdom is the theme of this book, and wisdom is one of the great themes of the world. This word here that's translated as master workman, it's proven to be a source of intrigue for a lot of scholars. How do we actually translate this Hebrew word amon? Some people suggest that this word means wisdom was God's darling and his delight. 
Others think that wisdom was his little child. Here's how Albert Walters conceives of this, this master workman idea. He says, in a bold metaphor, the poet has wisdom describe herself as a kind of living blueprint preceding creation, but present at its execution. It seems to be the law of creation before creation, pictured as a personified artist's conception that accompanies him in his work. Here's his suggestion for the translation. I would suggest that it means something like a scale model, a fixed point of reference that serves the craftsman as a standard in building. As God the craftsman fashions the world, wisdom is the standard by which he works. What a fascinating concept that the fixed point of reference for God as he was creating the world, the living blueprint that he used was wisdom itself. But what does this mean? That all throughout God's creation, he's essentially, uh, he's put in place this fabric of wisdom that we can either choose to live by or, or cut against the grain. And, and it doesn't take you know, a whole lot of thought to realize it's probably not all that wise to live against the grain of God's wisdom in this world. What we notice here in Proverbs 2 is that wisdom isn't some hobby horse of Solomon. It's not like he has this uh, weird obsession with wisdom and it's not actually that useful in life. No, he's actually saying what's right here is at the foundation of the world. This is foundational to our life in it. This is God's world and God set it up to work in a particular way. So if we miss wisdom, we're actually fighting against this grain that God has set up in the universe. And I wonder oftentimes, oftentimes if a significant amount of the troubles that we face in this life are because we are, in some sense, cutting against the grain. We're not living in accordance with the fabric that God has woven the creation with. So this book, it exists to show us the fabric so that we're not left guessing how to, how to live accordingly. This is the way God designed us to live. This is the aim. So what? Get wisdom. Well, verse 2, it also exists to give us the ability to understand words of insight. This is a complex world. Uh, we all know this from experience. It's an, an incredibly intricate and complicated world. In the Proverbs, the wisdom of God is going to give us the ability to, to make distinctions, to give us uh, distinctions of words of insight. And then verse 3, this book will give us instruction in wise dealing. Here's the practicality of this book. And it's a specific practice that's in mind. Why? So that we would know righteousness, justice, and equity. If wise dealing has to do with our practical life in this world, then here are the practical things it wants to teach us. Righteousness, justice, and equity. If we want true justice, if we want true righteousness, then we need to look to the book of Proverbs. And all of this must be understood, rooted in the fear of God. Because look how John Calvin says it. I think he puts it perfectly. Men will never preserve fairness and love among each other without the fear of God. If we don't start with the fear of God, then these things that the book of Proverbs is commending to us, namely righteousness, true justice, true equity, they're not going to be accomplished in our midst. We need to start with the one where these attributes are actually rooted. It's because God is just. It's because God is righteous that we value these things. 
the Proverbs, friends, it will allow us to be on the cutting edge of justice. Not because it's some vague cultural uh, uh, priority, but because it's God's priority. This is God's priority here. This was written a whole lot longer than, than 2022. These are God's priorities. Well, it's also written to a couple subgroups. Verse four, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. So two groups here. First is the simple. Now, I personally think that uh, simplicity is a great attribute, but the way simplicity is used in the book of Proverbs is not something that's commendable. If you're simple in the Proverbs, it's actually a, it's a knock on your character. It means that you don't have the tact or the skill to actually make distinctions where you're meant to make distinctions. It's for the simple, for those who need to grow in wisdom and instruction. This book is for them. But you also notice that it's for the youth. It's for young people. We're going to see momentarily that, yes, it's for all people. But this is so important that he focuses here on young people. And the reason I think that Solomon focuses on young people here at the early in the book is because he knows that young people are far more prone to live against the grain than with it. And, and Matthew McCullough, he wrote a book called Remember Death, and I think he helps us understand why young people are so prone to living against the grain instead of with the fabric that God has instilled throughout all of the universe. Here's what he says. Loss is universal. It's not exceptional. It's guaranteed, not unexpected. Every relationship is lost to time. So is every penny of everyone's wealth. And ultimately, so is every life. Loss isn't surprising. It's basic to the course of every life. But the younger you are, the harder it is to experience the true weight of this problem. When you're young, it's almost impossible to see that what your life feels like now won't last forever. It's all you've known. There's no standard for comparison. It doesn't matter how many times you're told that time flies or how many times you're warned by someone older to enjoy what you have while it lasts. It's natural to feel like what you love will go on forever. If anything, the future promises more gain, not loss. You tend to view your life as a kind of savings account with each passing year. You're adding new assets, watching the number continue to grow. You're expanding your mind through education. You're getting better at your job. You're developing new hobbies or handy skills. You're forming new and meaningful relationships or deepening the relationships you already have. Overall, it feels like you're stockpiling things you love about life. So you focus on what you don't have yet and doing what's necessary to get it, not on the prospect of losing what you have. But the truth is that life works like a savings account in reverse. Zoomed out to the span of an entire life cycle, you see that no one is actually stockpiling anything. You're spending down, not saving up everything you have, your healthy body, your marketable skills, your sharp mind, your tre treasured possessions, your loving relationships will one day be everything you've lost. I know it's a long quote, and it's worth quoting extensively because he puts his finger right on why this book is for young people. We don't see the world the way we're meant to see it. They think that we're stockpiling, whereas as soon as we were born, God knew every single breath that he had for you, and every single breath you take is one less breath on that ticker. We're stockpiling nothing. We're in some sense losing everything. Now, this framework 
is not meant to make us feel, woe is me, we're losing everything. It serves a function that there is something much better for us to gain. But the author of Proverbs, he doesn't ask us to look at life through rose-colored glasses. He, he doesn't say, hey, just, just look through this lens and everything's going to be all right. It's going to be easy. You're going to be rich. You're going to be beautiful. He's, he's not promising that. He's a realist. He lives in the world that's been sullied by sin. So I won't be the judge this morning if you think you fit into the category of being young or not, but the spirit there can be for young people or if you're older. The spirit of living forever, the spirit of stockpiling, the spirit of living against God's grain. But it is addressed to young people. And I think it's worth pausing on that because we so often want to make excuses for young people saying, hey, religion, truly following Jesus is for when you get older. Being young is for, you know, doing the things of this world and you can come back to God later. We want to make excuses for young people. And the longer time goes on, we start creating new subgroups in our culture. So now when you're out of college, you're an adolescent. We don't expect you to be a grown-up yet because now you're supposed to just go get all the worldliness out and we push being an adult till like you're 30. The Bible has no room for a worldview like that. The Bible understands that young people have the capacity to understand wisdom and to grow in wisdom. Wasn't Daniel seen to be wise as he navigated life as a young Jew in a faraway place called Babylon? They saw that he was wise. And he, he, he shined like a light in a dark place as a wise young man. Wasn't David seemed to be wise throughout the entirety of his life, even from a young age? Wasn't Joseph seen to be wise as a young man? Wasn't our Lord Jesus seen to be wise even at the age of 12? We get that great image that Luke gives us where Jesus is in the temple learning the scriptures and, and talking with the people in the temple. And then Luke gives us this great summarizing statement in Luke 2.52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Was not Jesus young? Was not Jesus wise at the age of 12? Now you say, well, that's Jesus. Well, do we not affirm that he was fully man and fully God? And that at, at the age of 12, he had all the same temptations as any 12-year-old has. He has all the same distractions as any other 12-year-old had. And yet Jesus grew in wisdom and in favor with God. I would caution against using our Lord as an excuse for young people to delay seeking wisdom. You can be young and you can be wise. It just depends on how you come to wisdom, are you going to listen to her? We don't know much about Jesus' early life. We don't know what he did. We don't know what kind of books he read. But we do know one thing. He was always in the scriptures. Jesus, as a young man, had his nose in the scriptures. And I love what, what Fleming Rutledge says. She says, it's not too far-fetched to compare Jesus' total immersion in the scriptures to the young person of today who is continually plugged into electronic media. See people, you see young people and they can barely lift their necks because they're so busy looking down at their phones and they know how to navigate these things. Just like that, Jesus was always in his Bible. 
And we make excuses saying, oh, well, we can't expect them to read the Bible or to listen to, to Christian teaching or to grow in wisdom. But we, we have no issue with them navigating these extraordinarily complex devices that we put in their hands. They can figure out this mini computer, but they can't open a book that has uh, pay, you know, white pages and black letters on it. Church, we need to be careful And we're all responsible for raising the children in the church to know and fear God. We we can't be making excuses for young people to delay seeking wisdom. God expects it of them, and he addresses them. This is a book for young people. This is the aim of the book, to give wisdom and understanding to simple and young people. This is the goal that we should be seeking every time we open this book. All right, well, that's the purpose. We have yet to see, though, where it begins. And that brings us to the third section in verses 5 to 7, where we see the argument of Proverbs, the argument of Proverbs. Verse 5 begins with this great invitation. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. This is the primary application for this section. Listen up is what the is what Solomon is saying. Listen up. The greatest virtue in the book of Proverbs is teachability. Are you a teachable person or are you dead set in your ways? Are you just going to keep going with the way things have always been for you or will you be teachable? And remember, just just like how wisdom, it's a theme of the universe and therefore it's a theme of this book, So listening to the words of God is is a theme here. It's the main application because this is actually a theme of the universe as well. Think about it. What else is there to do as we stand there and read about the creation events but listen? God speaks and the world comes into existence. What are we to do but simply to listen to God speak? For the old Israelites, what do they say every morning? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Their whole life begins with simply listening and responding to God. What do those first people who encounter the gospel, what's expected of them? Stop and listen. The good news is being proclaimed. Repent and believe the gospel. Here's a message. All you need to do is listen. And what's the secret that God gives to the churches in the book of Revelation for being faithful to the end? Every time he addresses a church, what does he say at the end? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The whole Bible, it's just about listening to God. Do you have the ears? Do you have your ears open simply to stand in awe of who God is and to hear him addressing you? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And notice here, I told you earlier, uh, uh, Proverbs is for all people, even though he says explicitly it's for the simple and it's for the young, but here's where we see it. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. So he's addressing wise people just as much as he's addressing young people and simple people. But the wise person he's addressing The only way you classify yourself as a wise person is if you know you're not as wise as you should be. That's true wisdom, is knowing that you're not as wise as you should be. So it's no surprise we read in Proverbs 26, 12 that uh, he asks, do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. 
Brothers, sisters, as soon as you start identifying yourself as wise, you've just made yourself a fool. A truly wise person boasts in the fact that there is much more to learn and they're hungry to learn it. You have to wonder if the Apostle Paul was reading Proverbs in his daily Bible reading when he wrote this to the church in Rome in in Romans 12, 16. Never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. If you want to be wise, brothers and sisters, know that there's more wisdom for you to experience. There's more wisdom for you to uh, accumulate. There's no better way to block out the Spirit than trusting our own intelligence and trusting our own knowledge. We need to be learners before God. We need to know that there's so much more to learn about him and his world. So here it is. You want an application? Here's the application this morning. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. This is not about sermons or Sunday mornings. This is about a lifestyle of learning and pursuing God's wisdom in the world. All of creation, if your ears are open, you can hear the voice of the creator. All of creation sings about the creator. His divine attributes have been perceived from the beginning of the world until now. All we need to do is listen. We never graduate from God's academy. There's no such thing as as stopping or graduating. We're all in his academy. Now, for you, I, I really want you to think about what this means in your life. If the main invitation from God this morning is that you would hear an increase in learning, then I just want to ask you, are you doing that? Yes, certainly it begins with the Bible, but The whole world is enchanted according to the proverbial worldview. Everything can teach us about the God of the Bible because he's the creator. Are you learning in your trade, in in work? Are you learning about how to be a more faithful parent? Are you learning about what it means to be a better and more consistent friend? Are you learning about what it means to be a faithful church member and to carry your church membership duties? There's endless things to learn about. The question is, are you actually seeking that wisdom and understanding? Let us hear an increase in learning. Verse 5, and let the one who understands obtain guidance. Oh, to have guidance. How many of us would love to have some good old-fashioned guidance right now? Maybe you've got some major decisions in your life. You know, should I marry this person? Should I not? Should I pursue this education? Should I not? Should I change jobs right now or not? Oh, to have some good old-fashioned guidance. We all want guidance. And the book of Proverbs actually says, if you take me up, I'll give you guidance. God wants to guide you. He wants to take you by the hand as a shepherd and lead you. But the way we obtain guidance is the real question. Do you want God to give you liver shivers as you're thinking about the next decision to make? Do you want writing in the sky and for him to just open the heavens and tell you with an audible voice, this is what you should do? We would all love that. But wouldn't that be a bit backwards? That God's just going to give us a simple answer to complex life decisions? The book of Proverbs says, take take up and read. Saturate your mind and guidance will flow from this book. So that when you need to make really hard decisions of life, you'll know the shepherd's voice and I will guide you with my word. A lot of people, they want guidance, 
but very few people are willing to invest the effort needed to obtain it. Let him who understands obtain guidance. Will we hear and heed this, this command? The more and more we do this, the more we will, verse 6, understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their, and their riddles. What he's saying here is, in order to understand the Proverbs, we actually just need to get our nose in the book and spend some time with the Proverbs. The more we spend time here, the greater the return they're going to have over time. But still, hearing in and of itself means very little unless our ears are open for the right reasons. And this is what leads us to the argument and the main point and the thesis of this book. Verse 7, here it is. The fear of the Lord... The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here's the first block in building any wisdom. Scratch that bad illustration. It's not the first block. This is the very foundation on which all wisdom is built. If you don't fear God, you don't have a leg to stand on. There's no concrete foundation to actually build the structure of the house on. The fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of knowledge. So what does it mean to fear God? Well, it's a very difficult term to explain because it's a, it's a grand response to a glorious God. It's a big response to a majestic Savior. So let me, let me give a few options. It certainly has an aspect of wonder and awe in it. Is your relationship to God stale? Is it boring? Then it it probably is not too saturated with the fear of God. The fear of God has awe and wonder in it. it. It has reverence in it. It also knows deep in its soul that God is God and you are not. There's There's a great distance between you and God when you fear God. The fear of the Lord has a desire to please God alone and to please God fully The fear of the Lord has an aspect of knowing that God is holy and he's in heaven and that we are unholy and we are on earth. Fear of the Lord, it has an aspect of trust in it, that God is is up to something in this world, whether you can see it or not. I'm providing some options here, but I hope you can begin to get a whiff that this fear of the Lord, it's a grand response to a glorious God. And it's actually the one fear that drives out all other fear. If you fear God, you won't fear anything else. He alone is to be feared. He alone is to have our whole hearts. It's the beginning of knowledge. This is how it all begins. This is the argument of the book. We need to start right here. Now, I made the point earlier in verses 2 to 4 that the purpose of wisdom, it's for the fear of God. Here, the beginning is to fear God. Now, look at how Solomon, the wisest of men, I think this might be one of the wisest lines ever written by the wisest of men, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether whether good or evil. Solomon, after exploring everything in the world, looking for some significance, he says, all has been heard. Everything's been experienced. I've plumbed the depths. What are you to do? Here's the answer. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. This is the whole duty of our relationship to God. So the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning. 
It's the first word of wisdom, and it's the end. It's the last word of wisdom. Every ounce of wisdom that we ever get must be rooted in the fear of Yahweh. Fools despise it because they despise God. So let's beware that we don't despise any of the wisdom of God, lest we be despising the Lord himself. We can't separate the two. Now, by way of final application, we need to recognize that we won't understand a fraction of the book of Proverbs. And in fact, we won't understand a fraction of the whole Bible unless we start right here. Because the book of Proverbs is not the only place where we hear proverbial statements. Is not the Lord Jesus Christ himself the wisest of men ever to be born? Well, I said Solomon was earlier. Well, Solomon was the wisest of men Christ accepted. And was it not true of Christ that he spoke in Proverbs? Whoever would save his life must lose it. A tree is known by its fruit. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I mean, this is just a sampling of the proverbial way in which the Lord Jesus speaks. He's a master sage. And if we don't understand the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, we're not going to understand the words of Jesus. Could it be that as we look at Jesus, we're looking at the very incarnation of wisdom itself? Could it be that this is the one who throughout all eternity possesses all wisdom in himself? But if it is true that in Christ we have the incarnation of wisdom, then how do we make sense of a death like his? How how can the wisest of all men, the, the, the word made flesh, how can he die what appears to be such a foolish death, surrounded by mockers, people jeering at him, foolish men who despise the wisdom of God, does not appear to be a death fitting of the wisest of men. But we need to fear God in order to answer this question. And the fear of God will allow us to see what the Apostle Paul sees in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Jesus Christ was crucified. This is our message. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and what? The wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Brothers and sisters, this is the proverb of salvation. The cross of Jesus Christ, where he hangs, being crucified for all who despised him and his wisdom. Here is wisdom, the very substitution of sinful, foolish man with the all-wise incarnation of God. And if we do not fear God, and if we do not bow down at what's happening at the cross, we will never understand wisdom. Because what Paul is saying here is that this event is where all wisdom is wrapped up. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's wisdom on full display. Could it be that this moment, far from being the folly of man, is actually the wisdom of God? Could this be 
the most memorable and short statement of the love and justice of God that the world has ever seen. The cross is wisdom from above coming down to the planet in order to make absolutely foolish enemies like we were friends of God. What wisdom, what a glorious wisdom on full display in the crucifixion of the Son of God. Will you hear him this morning? Will you hear him this afternoon when we actually put these training wheels on and actually decide to pursue a life of wisdom? Will you hear him? And will you fear him? The cross demands an open ear. And the cross demands that we bow in reverence and awe and wonder at wisdom made flesh. Let's hear in fear. It's the beginning and the end of wisdom. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by God's word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.